Hello, welcome to FiresideFileMaker.com, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. Hello, I'm Michael Richard, and welcome to another episode of Fireside FileMaker. In this episode, we're going to talk about subjects that are close to our heart, training and teaching. Over to you, John. My name is uh, John Mark Osborne, and Michael suggested we do a podcast on training in the FileMaker market. And I was like, duh, of course. We all have extensive experience, Mark, Michael, and myself. So it seems natural to talk about what makes a good training class, not only for the student, but I think this information will be good for trainers too. You know, what do you look for in a class? What do you, you know, what, what's, what makes a good class? What, you know, how do you know you're taking a good class? Things like that. And just generally just to talk about the history of training um, and, you know, our methodologies and what we think makes a good class. So what do you think, Mark? Yeah, I think we should make a, um, I think we should talk about that, but I also think we should talk about what current training resources are available for both the beginning FileMaker person, person interested right from the beginning, as well as maybe an intermediate person, or what does a person do when they have 25 years of experience and they still want to learn about this and that? And I think um, the avenues for that could be different in some situations. So I'd like to explore that if we could. Sure. That's a good idea. So I think where we'll start is is our history, just so you know a little bit about us. And, and I'll start off uh, way back 25 years ago, uh, I started writing uh, books or wrote a book called Scriptology. I followed that up by writing another, uh, a bunch of uh, different training materials uh, that aren't available anymore beyond the basics reporting and philosophy of scripting 101 and 201. Those ones are actually still around. Scripting is my passion, so I love that. Uh, but I haven't rewritten them in a while. I've also done a lot of public speaking at DevCon, at users groups, DigFM, FM Disk. We talked about FM Disk uh, a while ago with uh, David. I've also done a lot of video training. That was interesting when I went from training in live audiences to training on videos. When I started off with Mac Academy, they kind of, you know, showed me the ropes, but it was it was much different. I was I was stuttering and, and losing my thought process because there's this camera stuck in your face or you know that it's being recorded. It's just a different thing. It's you can't back up. It, I felt like I had to be perfect, right? I eventually got better at it and went to work with VTC also, which that company imploded. So I moved on to a company called Infinite Skills and they imploded. And so finally I went out and self-published uh, through Udemy and now mostly through a, a site called Thinkific, where I have my videos there. And so what you're saying, John, is that whenever you go to work for a user training company, it implodes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've, I've infiltrated them and destroyed them. Now, uh, it, it's kind of an interesting story about uh, uh, VTC is that they uh, decided one day that they wanted to make more money. So they moved all of their workforce over to the Philippines, fired everybody I'd worked with for about, I think about 10 years at least. And I'm like, wow, you know, how'd this happen? And then the company just literally died at that point because they thought they could do the same quality with some folks over in the Philippines and it just didn't work out. Yeah, understandable. And then the last thing uh, in my history is uh, the blog, uh, which was going to be my second book. 
But then we'll talk about books and, and their purpose and training these days. But I decided to change the book into uh, quite a few beginning articles or, or starter articles for the, the blog. Maybe like, you know, a couple dozen articles came out of that book. And that's where I focus my time because it's really too hard at this point to write a book in a reasonable amount of time until something new comes out with the quarter releases from FileMaker. So, Michael, tell us a little bit about yourself and your, your background. Well, I've done a lot of uh, writing as, and video production, as you have, John. Um, I, start, I wrote my first ebook, FileMaker and Me, um, back in oh, 2014, and it was uh, a labor of love. It was something I always wanted to do, and I'd never found the right mechanism. And then um, what's, the, uh, what's the iBooks author came out? And I thought, this is exactly what I need. And I wrote that first book. And it took me about 150 hours to write it, I think, altogether, from the time I started to the time it was published. And um, it was very well received. It sold well over 1,000 copies. So it was a profitable exercise. My second book uh, was a free book on custom themes when they just came out or themes when they came out, and that was a free one and was downloaded almost 2,000 times. And then my third book was Farmaker and You, which was sort of fast-tracking um, intermediate to beginners, giving them advanced techniques that they could usually implement. And it sold relatively well, but there just seemed to be a lack of interest in buying books anymore, and this is one of the subjects that we're going to cover. So I stopped work on the three or four other books I had in progress and just turned those and used them and made videos and short blog articles about them. Uh, I made a series of 15 animated films um, poking fun at this crazy things that businesses do and that I've seen personally over the years. And uh, those are they great, were by well the way. Received. Seen those, those, things, are those are awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, they got, a, they got a lot of laughs. And, um, you know, that was a sort of a, a passion project in a way and was pretty expensive. I spent over $3,000 putting those together. Um, and I don't regret doing it because it was very satisfying to do it. But these things do have a cost to produce. And since then, I've got the FileMaker Community College with more than 100 videos. Um, all my videos are very short. They're sharp to the point. There's no frenetic mouse movements. Uh, I don't ponder on over and saying the same thing over and over again. I get to the point and get out. And recently, I've created a series of videos for inter beginners to intermediate explaining key concepts using the voice of David Attenborough, who's a, a really great voice, and using humor to explain those key concepts. And that's where we are today. Mark, help, tell us about your experience. Yeah, you guys are uh, have an interesting history there. So for me, I was sort of dragged into training because I worked for a nonprofit association and I didn't know how to spell FileMaker when I first started there, started in 91. And I started uh, helping people with their Macintosh computers at night and on the weekends, just picking up clients here and there. And one of the customers said, you know, you should really train in this course and I can get you in at New Horizons. I said, no, 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 I'm not a trainer. I'm 
that's it's I happen to be good at the computer, but I'm not a trainer. She says, you don't know it yet, but you are a trainer and you need to be there. So I took the plunge and did my first class at New Horizons back, you know, in 1993 or so. And then I'd started teaching at night. At that time, it was just beginning Macintosh and things like that. Um, so then, you know, I realized, hey, this is a lot of fun. It's fun to see people light up, learn something new for the first time and have a smile on their face and then feel like they've done something or accomplished something when they leave. So that's where it all started for me. Then uh, that that was fairly short-lived. Like you, John, you know, these companies implode and that company imploded as well. They also used to sell computer hardware, you know, back in the day where you could go to a computer store called New Horizons, buy your Macintosh, and that was where you got it. And now it's all online and so forth or at the Apple store. In any case, um, we obviously right around that time, I started productive computing shortly thereafter. And at that point, I wasn't really training at night and on weekends. I was working in the company and building videos for our employees or for customers or for this and that. We also have a YouTube channel where we would demonstrate how our products work or different concepts for the community. So that's where sort of I cut my teeth after that, doing all these training videos for YouTube related to FileMaker. And of course, those add up over the years. If you do it for 10, 20, 25 years, you end up having a big body of work. But uh, I've never really written... I've written the off blog article, but I haven't written a book like you guys or anything like that. I always went the video route only because I love to learn via video. So I figured there are other people out there like me that love to learn via video. Uh, John, like you, I have presented at DEF CON a few times and several user groups over the years as well. And now, you know, my outlet is here on this podcast um, when I'm invited to be the guest speaker here and there. And I appreciate that, you guys. And, um, we like having you, Mark. It's uh, you always bring an interesting viewpoint to the podcast. Oh, so thank you. We're glad Thanks. to have you. Um, most notably, though, or most recently, I should say, in 2018, we started Productive Computing University, which, like John, is a dedicated school that uh, that we run through a course engine. We have uh, 12 plus courses on that particular site, and the purpose of that is yes, we are talking about some of our products, but we're talking about more advanced features about FileMaker and related technologies. Incidentally, we have this thing called university. We don't actually teach people FileMaker. We teach them all the other ancillary things. And then in addition, we have a FileMaker certification preparation course, which I personally am. Uh, that's really what started that whole project. It was simply because I was frustrated that we didn't have certification preparation training in video format in the format that I'm accustomed to when I train for AWS. So the moment I realized that, oh, this is a thing, I can take this same concept and bring it to FileMaker, uh, I get excited and we started the university. And that's that was one of the main courses that we have there for that. And um, we're putting a lot of effort into the next generation of that course by including test questions as well. So we'll have a separate course for test questions coming up. That way people get a, an example of just how hard that test is uh, by giving them questions that are uh, appropriate. Yeah, that's So an, that's that's my history. That's an understatement about how hard that test is. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, well, it's, go ahead, Michael. 
Well, I was just going to say we, we did an entire podcast on certification, I think, before you came on board as a guest for the first time. And uh, we both have very different opinions on it. I'm not a, a fan of the certification program. I don't think it proves anything other than you can memorize lots of facts and figures that you don't need to know in real real life. So I, I just don't see why I don't see the value of it. And it's not something I've ever needed to have. So. But I understand a lot of people do feel it. You guys both like it and are both certified on every version. Um, I can think of a better way of a certification program that would actually prove ability, but that's my thoughts on it. Yeah, I, I believe I agree on for 90% of what you said, Michael, that the test sometimes is just memorization. And these are things that you wouldn't memorize normally because you just look them up, like what version of FileMaker is compatible with what operating system. Nope. Some people, yes, memorize it. Some people can, you know, have a photographic memory and can remember it. But those things aren't really that helpful to have memorized and have on a test. Same thing with, uh, you know, looking at, let's say, an example of knowing which script trigger fires in what order or which script trigger is a post and a pre, which script trigger can do that. You know, these things, you need to know the basics about these script triggers. You need to have used them before, but you need to memorize all this stuff. And that's, I think, the issue we have. There are certainly really good questions on the certification test, such as things about relationships and things like that. And you need to make sure you can look at a relationship and decipher what it's going to do. And that I agree with. And I think uh, I've heard that they're going to change the certification test a bit, but I don't know for sure. Uh, I think there are major plans um, to change the certification test. I don't know how much of that is under NDA, but some of these things that you guys are talking about, the memorization aspect, I think are things they're addressing in the future versions. So more to come on that. I, but here's the the biggest problem with it, though, and I know that I can I know a couple of people that I can say this absolutely unequivocally about. Both certified, uh, both think they're absolute experts because they're both certified, and neither of them are better than an intermediate developer at best. And they've so they're doing themselves and a file maker and their clients a disservice by claiming to be an expert when they really haven't got a clue. I think that's, I think that's a dominant thing that happens not only in the FileMaker world, but it happens in the AWS world as well. Cause someone can be AWS certified and really only have a handful of hours with the product in a lab. So, and then you get someone with uh, 10 years doing the same thing. They're an absolute expert in one area of AWS, but they won't be able to be certified because they only know that one aspect of AWS. And certification is about broad knowledge, broad scope of a particular platform or product. And it's a, I don't know, a baseline of understanding and knowledge, but it's got very little to do with how good someone is at a particular platform or how agile they are with it, you know? And very hard to test, right? extremely hard to test. You'd almost have to say, you know, and Michael, you probably have some good ideas on how to make a test better or how to prove someone's prove someone's talent. But uh, it would probably be outside the realm of practicality. You know, we sit for these tests for an hour and a half to two hours. We answer 65 questions. They're all hard and a lot of it's trivia. Some of it's tricky and a lot of it's not pertinent. But I don't know if there's a better 
easier way to do it in it, but still being practical where you can go to a test center, you're under lock and key, you're actually, you know, because uh, to determine someone's skill and talent takes someone with skill and talent. It takes one to know one. So in order to validate someone's proficiency at something, you too would have to be proficient. And at the end of the day, some of that is subjective. You know, someone, two, two invoice systems could be built. One would be seen as elegant by one and a disaster by another. So it's tricky. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've actually come up with a very comprehensive uh, certification program that would address all of the issues that you're talking about, which would be easy to do and would actually prove expertise in a, in a very simple and cost-effective and time-effective way um, but whether anything like that will ever get addressed, I, I, I don't know. I really don't. Well, you can send that to me because I'm interested to see your ideas on that. Oh, I'm happy to sh- share it to you with you. We could discuss it if you want, if you guys wanted to. But um... well, I'll put my two cents worth in. The way that we used to test the ability of potential contractors to work on FileMaker databases was to give them a database to build. And we used to tell them, say, hey, I want an invoicing solution that does this, this, and this. And we could test, do they know what a join table is? Do they know how to do a script? You know, various things. They didn't have to be done exactly the way that the question asked it, as long as we could go, oh, I see what he's doing here. Okay, that's that's a good thing to do, or that's a different way to do it, just as fine as this way. And that's probably the best way to test. But is it practical for reviewing it? No, they can't review these these, uh, you know, all these people, these thousands of people are taking the certification test and, and have, you know, this one person who knows everything about FileMaker go through and review all these databases and say whether they passed or not, because at that point, it's subjective. You know, it's it's a really tough thing to do. And, I, and so we're not really making the certification test out to be bad. There's not really a great way to test, unfortunately. Well, so just briefly, um, I think in my idea, you have three stages. You get applicants to submit a 10 to 15 minute video on a solution they've designed so that it can be reviewed. If it's good enough, if it looks good, then they submit themselves to a 30 minute Zoom session where they explain the, explain the situation, the solution to a panel of experts, two or three people who are well established like you guys. And they answer technical questions about it and they're asked how they overcome certain things. And if they pass that, they go on to the next stage where they're asked a series of theoretical questions about FileMaker, but deep theoretical questions, not fundamentals. Explain context. That's, a, that's something that everybody needs to understand. And then if they pass that, um, the next step would be to give them a FileMaker file that's got half a dozen tricky things for them to solve. And you send it out to them and you let them solve it. And if they pass all three of those, then they're certified. And they've at least demonstrated some practical ability. And they may not be an expert, but they're certainly not going to be an amateur. Right. And the reason they won't do that is because it's going to take too much time, even though it's probably a better way to test somebody. In fact, it's somewhat similar to what I just mentioned, but they'll never do it because they just don't have the time to certify people like that, unfortunately. Oh, it's time and money. Yeah. Practicality. Practicality, yeah. <clears throat> well, I think all of those all of those can be overcome. And I'll share the document with you guys later and then you can tell me what you think back channel and I'll be interested to hear. 
So it's it's interesting that you know when we get started talking, you know, never know where we're going to go because certification is is you know you need to learn about it. It's, I think it's a good conversation, but I want to kind of get back to our outline and and one of the people here his name is Michael, has done a lot of public speaking, not just with FileMaker. He's in an organization. And I think we want to start this off because you need to be a good public speaker. You need to be comfortable in front of a video or comfortable with your writing or comfortable speaking in front of people. These are key things to, to get to DevCon and to get to wherever you want to speak at. And so I want to have Michael talk about some of the points on which he's discovered over the years through his organizations and, and hopefully help you guys uh, in, you know, making yourself better public speakers and then for making yourself a better trainer. Well, absolutely. And I think public speaking is one of the most essential skills that any, any developer can have. It's, and especially so if you are working for yourself or in a very small shop where you've got to be able to present to clients and potential clients and train your own people. That's also an essential part of being able to speak well. And I've done it for a lot of years. I've spoken on many different subjects through many different audiences. I attend a weekly open mic public speakers forum in Vegas, which is every Wednesday night or every Wednesday morning for the US. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. And it lasts an hour and everybody there gets an opportunity to, to speak on a subject they have prepared or they're working on. And it's the more you can do, the better you will get, because it is about practice. You get over the, the getting over the nerves is the biggest part. And most people are just terrified of public speaking. Um, I kind of re remi reminds me of the story about Jim Carrey and uh his father said he wasn't a ham, he was the entire pig. And so you've really got to be able to get up on stage and generate energy and excitement and be charismatic when you're on stage to really get an audience uh, following you. And the other thing is to, as far as possible, try and eliminate the ums and the ahs and the, you know, the catches of breaths and all of the vocal inflections and strangenesses that that we just do as a matter of course and i don't know whether you notice this but the phrase you know is everybody's using it all the time you know you know you know you know and it's like why can't you just state a coherent idea without saying you know because you know that nobody knows what you know so now how do you work that type of thing out of your vocabulary well it's very simple you just have to be aware of your of, that you're doing it and when you are speaking you're listening with one part of your mind to the ums and the ahs if you also at the end of it you go back you've recorded it you go back and you listen to it and watch yourself and you catch yourself doing it physically looking for that and just keep trying and trying and trying to eliminate it. And eventually you'll get to a point where you won't have any ums and ahs and the vocal inflections. You're always going to have catches of breath. You're always going to have a, a pregnant pause. Those can be edited out when 
you know, when you're producing something to release it. But it's just practice, John. It really is. And, and you also have to love to be up in front of an audience. To me, it's the greatest buzz in the world. The first time I stood up and delivered a, a, at a contest in Vegas for a Toastmasters Tall Tale concept, contest, I was up in front of 500 plus people and I'd never spoken to an audience of that size before. And I was on the stage and my knees were knocking. My voice was quaking and shivering. And I felt it was an absolute disaster. And at the end of it, I got the usual round of applause. And I went back to my table thinking I just bombed there. And my girlfriend at the time said, how do you feel? And I said, it was awful, awful, awful. And she said, no, it wasn't. You were as comfortable and as composed on that stage as somebody who's been talking for the, all their life. So a lot of the things that we worry about are just in our heads. And once you accept that and know that, you can be good on stage. Yeah, I think I think everybody's going to get the butterflies. It's just getting used to the butterflies when they get up there, and then it becomes much easier. Yeah, I think it's... Yep. But no substitute for practice. And I'll post a link to the uh, public speaking group that I go to uh, in the podcast notes. And they have several different sessions at different times and different days. And it's been a great learning experience for me. And I, I still enjoy it. And I've been, I've been speaking for a lot of years. So I'm not exactly a beginner. I love that perspective. And especially the part where you said you thought you bombed. And your girlfriend at the time thought that you did really well and were comfortable. And I think that we forget as presenters that in most cases, the audience is rooting for us and sympathetic to us being up there in many ways. Not everybody, but most people. And th there's sort of this built-in forgiveness um, quotient that happens to a public speaker when um, when they don't always hit 100%. So, and, and that, in our brain, though, there's no forgiveness. It's how terrible we are, how, you know, how awful it was, especially when we're beginning. Exactly. So let me just interrupt just quickly. Um, the other thing that I absolutely never, ever do is have notes on stage. I've never used a note in my life. And the reason for that is if I forget something, the only person who's going to know I forgot it is me. And the audience wouldn't have a clue, so it doesn't matter. And I think that's really important. And just to enjoy the fact, as you said, that the audience wants you to succeed. They don't want you to fail. Occasionally, you'll get some people in the audience who do. But most of the people want you to succeed. And so just take that as part of the, the journey. And let me interrupt you, Mark, also, just to, to reply to that. <laughs> Hopefully, you don't forget what you were going to say. But... I, I agree with you again, 90%. I think uh, bullet points on what you want to cover are important, but if you script out what you want to say, you might as well just read it, right? There's no point. There's no, there's no liveliness. There's no, there's no, um, 
it's not off the top of your head, even though you know the subject really well, it, it should be still off the top of your head. And in, in that moment for people to really grasp onto you and hold on to the conversation, go, oh, wow, I'm living what he's doing. He's not just reading something he wrote two days ago. He's actually there and talking to me. And, and it's a different, it's a completely different experience. Yeah, I, I just got the bullet points in my head, John. I don't write them down. So I already know what I'm going to talk about before I get up there. But it becomes also a, a fairly a free-form exercise because it won't necessarily come out in the order that I originally intended it to do so. True. Yeah, I think, it, I think it, for me, I, when I speak or when I do a video, uh, I'm very much like you guys. Very, it's very conversational. It's just talking about a particular subject. Uh, I sometimes forget something and then we'll have to add it in later. Sometimes I say too much and I have to cut it out in the editing process. Uh, during a live presentation, when you're speaking in front of a live audience, like at a DevCon, you don't get the the privilege of editing. So in some cases, uh, some formal cases, like when you are doing a DevCon speech, you do want to make sure that you have all the bullets that are important for the topic so that once it's recorded and played over and over again for years to come, you've done a really good job representing that topic. And I think we try to do that here on these podcasts too, when we make our initial outlines. We try to do our best to cover all the bases and not forget too many or anything about that. So, so I, I agree with both of those. And then one final point, you know, public speaking is, is one aspect of where people have apprehension and great fear. I think there's another aspect, and that is doing a video on camera that is going to be published in social media, especially like a YouTube. I think you get almost the same amount of fear. Um, out there, especially for new people. And I don't know if you guys have looked around, but video is sort of the new book. If you, if you think about how books uh, brought us to one level of education, and I think video is taking us the rest of the way. Um, there are more and more videos and more and more people have to do videos either on behalf of their business or to represent themselves somehow. Uh, but it, it's great. There's a great fear surrounding, oh, God, please don't make me go on camera. I can't. I cannot get on camera because why? Someone will see me and someone will critique me and I can't live with that. I think that's, a, that's also a very valid point, Mark. And it also extends to when you write, when we collectively write technique articles, how to do that. And you wonder, I think we all wonder, are we setting ourselves up? Are we actually going to put something that somebody we know in, in, the, in the community will look at it and go, you're an idiot. Right. You, that's just awful. I mean, I had that apprehension when I wrote Farmaker and Me. And fortunately, it, uh, it turned out to be the opposite. But it was certainly a thought in my mind. Am I setting myself up to be destroyed? Yeah, it's an interesting point about the book that we're definitely going to get to during this uh, during this podcast. So why not talk about it right now? I mean, books sure. are the the first thing that anybody's ever tried to train people. I mean, okay, let's throw in you know training classes, but books are there for so long. And and I'm going to ask Mark a question: uh, Do you think the book is dead at least for? technology because technology is moving so fast because i just did a search on amazon for filemaker 19 books and there are three books one's japanese 
and the other two are on FileMaker. Well, the other one's not even listed as FileMaker 19, but it was published in 2021, so I'm sure it is. Um, but there's really only a, a couple of books, whereas if you'd look 10 years ago, there have been dozens of books on FileMaker, whatever, 12, let's say. So my question is, do you think the book is dead, Mark? I don't think the book is dead for many topics like nonfiction, but I think for FileMaker training, yeah, I think it is in a sense dead. I think Richard Carlton recently published a book. He or, did, right? Yeah, he did. Yeah, that was one of the books I I saw okay. on Amazon. Yeah, but you think about um, Ray Colligan's FileMaker Ten Bible, which was an absolutely masterpiece of work. God knows how long it took him to produce it. More than it he's paid, that's done, for he, sure. He's never done one since, and he certainly didn't make any money from doing it. Oh, yeah. He said he'll never do it again. So Yeah. I, that's the one reason why I stopped doing my book. It was so much work. I should say my second book. The first book, Scriptology, with the CD, and it was actually two books and a CD full of it took us literally a year and a half to do. I mean, we had other things we had to do. You know, we had the everything CD. We had to answer the phones and, you know, all these various things we had to do. But we spent a good chunk of our time during that year and a half writing scriptology. And it was not even done in our minds. We've, we felt like we got to publish it because we, we don't have any money left. We're a small company. So we published it and people liked it, thankfully. But, you know, it, it takes a long time to do a book. And now that FileMaker's quarterly updates... I think that the only book that's really going to survive is this one from Richard Carlton, which says nothing about 19 on it. And he's going to go ahead and update it for those things. Maybe possibly that's a good uh, approach. You know, don't put the version on it. I don't know. It's hard to say. But even even with that caveat, um, the chances are, the likelihood is that it's not going to reach an audience because we're bombarded with so much on a daily basis and you're going to go out and buy a physical book. I mean, I don't buy physical books anymore, except very rarely I buy everything on Kindle and read on the, on the iPad or on the phone. And you lose certain amount of accessibility when doing that. So it, it's become a very tough market to break into and, it's time consuming, it's expensive to do, and and the chances are you're not going to make no money whatsoever. So you're just donating the time and hoping that somebody will get some benefit out of it. Yeah, I, th I think the format of, of the book makes it hard when things change too quickly because the author then says, oh, well, I have to republish it, especially if it's a physical book. You know, I have to actually work to maintain the relevancy of a book. Um, in order to, to keep up. But I guess then you'd have to challenge that notion with, well, don't we have the same problem with a YouTube video that's five years old talking about a FileMaker technique that is probably irrelevant or different? Right, but a YouTube video took a significantly less amount of time to produce. Mm, because you're isolating a particular topic. Right. Very, very focused on one technique. Right. Yeah, but you also... That's a very good point, Mark, because... As you, I'm sure you've done searches on on FileMaker on YouTube, and there are thousands and thousands of videos. And if you go in and look at, you know, look at a few, other than the ones that you did, of course, or, or John or I, there, a lot of them are really badly done. Uh, they look like the person who's doing it is having a an epileptic attack with the mouse as they're talking. 
and they repeat the same thing over and over again and just you know thinking that length is important whereas brevity is actually what you need so and a lot of them are just badly produced and don't give you very good information so somebody coming in who doesn't have the level of knowledge that we we do is going to be at a disadvantage in many different ways well you, you you do have to watch out about YouTube for the things you're talking about, uh, especially because anybody can can easily, easily create a YouTube channel. Go ahead and easily, if they have a computer and a headset, record a video and give you erroneous information. Um, it's a book takes, you can trust a book a bit more because of the length of time it takes to produce. You've got to watch out about YouTube and who you listen to and make sure that they're experts before you take it. And not only that, sometimes the YouTube information out there is about a really high end thing. When most people don't need that particular technique, they can do it a uh, half a dozen other ways. Only in this one situation, you want to do this. And sometimes those things aren't explained or people take that as the gospel and go, wow, I've got to go ahead and do this technique in order to make my FileMaker solution work. When you really don't, it's about having a wide knowledge of FileMaker. Yep, absolutely. Well, YouTube is a very creative process, or could be. And, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder when it comes to videos. And you'll take uh, a great creator, and someone is beloved by some and hated by others simply because they don't like the creator, they don't like their style, or their pace, or their knowledge, or their accent, or anything it's it's very subjective, much like why do you like a favorite author? I just love the way they write. They write like I love to to read, you know. So I think part of that is who and and how and what in the process. But but you're right. It is very easy to turn on the record and and start recording something. At the end of the day, though, I guess it has to be judged on on many aspects. What I'm always deeply surprised about is how how many videos there are related to FileMaker topics relative to the size of the market as a whole. Let me give you an example. In the world of music, you could take uh, a video on a particular keyboard, okay? And you might get dozens of videos on this one keyboard. But uh, the world is starved for that because there's many, many more musicians using the keyboard than there are videos explaining it. Totally the opposite in the FileMaker world. In the FileMaker world, you've got, let's just theoretically say, you've got 100 people that want to watch a topic on any one week. Yet you've got, you know, 50 videos on that one simple topic. So what ends up happening in our world, and I'm sure you guys have seen this, is that in the world of FileMaker videos, uh, you'll produce uh, this great video, or what you think is a great video, and you might get 50 to 100 views on it um, because the market is so tiny. And it's so oversaturated. So I've always been perplexed by why is it that there's so many people doing YouTube videos? Is it because we're all technically adept and we feel like we want to share our knowledge and that comes naturally to a FileMaker person? And why is it so different than other industries where people are starving for content and there's so little content to be had? I think it's kind of the reason why there's Pepsi and Coca-Cola and RC Cola and, you know, all the off brands because, you know, different people have different tastes, I guess. Yeah, and by the way, before we go on, I wanted to just mention one fact. I don't have an accent, you guys. You <laughs> so, but I think, according to Michael. 
<laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. But I think the, the problem is also that, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, is that if you look at the average time that somebody watches a video, they're only watching most of the time around 75 seconds. So if you can't convey an, a concept completely in just under a, just over a minute, the chances are that it's going to not reach an audience. It isn't going to be understood. And I don't know what the solution to that is because I think in this world we are also conditioned. We want everything instantaneously and uh, we don't have the time or aren't willing to spend the time diving in and really watching something to, to learn from it. We want that immediacy and with something as sophisticated and as powerful and as complex as Farmaker is, and it is all of those things as well as being very easy to use, so much of it is just lost into the ether of, I don't have time. Yeah, I I don't disagree uh, with uh, with anything that you guys have said. It's really uh, an interesting area to be in, the FileMaker training area. And I want to try to swing us back to one of the old school ways of training, which I'm not quite as old school as the book, but live training, in-person training, where you spend a ton of money to fly to possibly another state because finding a live class on FileMaker in, you know, right down the street is unlikely going to happen, especially if you're trying to go for intermediate or above. And so you spend a lot of money flying there, staying in the hotel, eating food out. You, you can easily spend thousands of dollars on a training class. And about five years ago, I stopped doing them. And I think that they're kind of on their way out too, because they're just the expense. And what people are doing now are, are doing things like videos. It's a much more accessible way to learn. Uh, it's less expensive. It's you can't ask questions, but you can always follow up with somebody like I often get my students who are watching my videos say, hey, I'd like to hire you for a couple hours to walk me through a couple things I don't quite get. And so they, they, they can use that extra money they save from going to another state to, 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 to take a class and, and actually apply it towards hiring somebody one on one uh, along with the videos to give that good you know, foundation. So I'm just curious, what do you guys think about uh, the, the live training class these days? Well, in a perfect world, it's hard to replace the impact live training can have on a, from one human to another because we're born and created to be, in a sense, learning side by side with people in the same room. You can feel the energy. You can see the body language. And you end up getting a better result, I think in the end. But the practicality of that has gone way, way down to the point where it's simply not practical to travel, to spend the money, to make the effort. And back in the day when we had live training, we didn't have robust training engines and course engines and the ability to do videos as easily as we do today. We didn't have a mechanism to properly train people by video as much as we have today. The other thing is humans have changed. People have adapted and grown accustomed to, and they've exercised the muscles to be able to learn from video training, where if you ask somebody 10 years ago, hey, do you want to learn by video or in person? 
almost everyone would raise their hand, well, geez, I learned better in person. Why would I want to watch a video? I can't ask questions. I can't interact. Today, though, those muscles have been exercised, and we are, as Michael said, bombarded with opportunities to watch videos on this, that, and the other, and we are now accustomed to learning that way. So I think as humans, we've adapted to learn that way, and of course, today's day and age, it's just impractical to do the in-person thing. But at the end of the day, if all things being equal, if we lived in a utopia or nirvana, uh, I don't think you can replace one human in another room with another human learning something. No, I absolutely agree with you. And when you get a group of people together in a in a classroom environment, there is the mastermind effect goes into comes into play where people start sharing ideas and bouncing off one another. You don't get that with video classes and video courses or video training sessions where you're actually doing a thing on Zoom and you're going through a lot of different stuff. For example, I just attended last week the Farmaker Disc meeting in California virtually, and it was very interesting. And there were three presenters who presented on Zoom, and it was uh, it was great. And I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I didn't have to go anywhere to attend it. And that's the big thing. And it's not only the cost of putting on a seminar or attending a workshop, it's the fact that you are now committed. You get sick as a presenter. You have to go ahead and, and do it, no matter how de dying you are, unless you're actually dying, in which case you've got to refund all the money. So it's a huge downside. The same go, it goes is true of people who are attending. They could get sick. They something might come up that prevent them. So it's a risky situation all the way around. And the most valuable commodity that any of us have is time. And going anywhere, if you're flying anywhere other than, you know, from San Francisco to LA, you've, you've lost a day. And even with a short trip like that, you've lost most of a day. And that's time you can't get back. And so the individual group training classes that are, take place in a city or even Farmaker, DEFCON, is coming up the second year, it's going to be virtual. And I suspect that it will remain virtual. And I think it'll be better. And there'll certainly people will get more out of it. It'll cost less money to put on and all of that. So tell me if this is a fair comparison, uh, both Mark and Michael. I'd like to compare live training versus video training to cooking at home versus eating fast food. Not not feeling it. Let me let me go a little bit further with it. Okay, well let me go a little bit further with it. So if you cook at home it's better quality, which we consider uh, live training to be uh, better quality, but less practical because you, in our busy lives these days, we don't have time to go and cook. We go out and get some food on the run and that's much easier. So that's kind of why I view uh, video training these days. Uh, it, it's, it's good, but it's maybe not quite as good as what you can get uh, from home cooking, but it certainly is a lot less expensive, a lot more convenient. And so that's why people have kind of gone towards 
you know, that video train. I think it's just easily accessible. You can get it at any time. You can get it for free. You can get it for a low cost. You know, it's just out there. And, and that's why there's so many fast food restaurants in the United States. It's easy and convenient. Uh, actually, I agree with you now that you explained it. I didn't think of it in those terms when you first said it. I was going, what's he talking about? That's right. It was for dramatic effect. I was hoping for a couple of laughs or something, but I, I, I guess I had thought about it too much, right? <laughs> I was going to say, the one thing about video training that makes it different than in-person training, that same obligation for someone to have to go and if they get sick and all that, the things that Mike were talking about, that obligation can be, in a sense, a good thing because when someone enrolls in an online class, they're really subject to their own self-discipline to proceed and to continue and to complete that course. There's no one really holding a gun to their head except themselves. Whereas if you are going to a place where you're going to have live training, it's an obligation, but a commitment, much like DevCon is a commitment. So I think, again, speaks to the results, speaks to that. And then one final aspect of this in-person versus non, uh, like DevCon and like in-person training, you build some form of camaraderie with the other people that are in the class with you, you build a deeper connection to the instructor and it becomes an experience, something that you remember for a lot longer than you'll, you'll forget a video course three weeks after you take it in terms of the impact it made on you emotionally. But you hardly ever forget the time that you spent three days learning XYZ in Atlanta and all the things that went along with that. So it's a much broader experience. Again, those days are sort of gone now, but, I hope that they bring DevCon back, and I hope that they also have a portion of DevCon permanently virtual for all the international people or people who don't normally are not able to travel for one reason or another. Anyway. Well, I always, I always say that about DevCon is it's it's the sessions are great, but really it's about sitting down at lunch next to somebody, finding out that they're doing the same thing as you. That happens in a class too, and that's why I'm kind of sad they're gone. You know. It, it, it's it's a much higher quality level of training in so many ways. We could sit there and talk about it for a half an hour or an hour, I'm sure, just this one particular aspect of training. Yeah, there's there's no doubt that the camaraderie you get of meeting peers and people, you know, that you, you know, sometimes we meet our heroes and uh, sometimes we are somebody else's hero and there is always that and it's it is nice to meet people and share ideas and break bread and and all of that but unfortunately with covid has made it i don't think we'll ever get over the covid uh, mentality i think people are going to travel less and less and and more and more stuff will be done remotely using zoom and um, tools like that so the world has changed irrevocably, I think, and um, in some ways it's good, in some ways it's bad. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I think that that uh, the pandemic has forced electronic learning to a faster pace than it was before. So now that it's probably going to, it, what life, a live training class had, or let's say a magazine you know, a printed magazine, what life they had are kind of going down the tubes because people can get all this stuff electronically and now they're getting more used to it because of the pandemic. Yeah, if there's one thing certain about humans is our ability to adapt. And just like we've adapted to the pandemic and learned how new ways to do things, new ways to meet, I think after the after this is largely done, we'll we'll eventually adapt to 
the fact that we now have choices. And I don't think travel will ever be what it was before the pandemic, but I do believe a lot of it will come back because just like the movie theaters at one point survived the VHS, uh, just like um, phonograph records survived the CD in boutique situations, I think that in-person training, I think that live dev cons and meetings and conferences will be there, but maybe at half what they were in the glory days. Um, because us humans, we we adapt, but we also like our choices and we are stubborn. We like sometimes reminiscing about how things are done and we don't like to have one size fits all. So that, that those are my thoughts on it. Well, plus I like the convenience of being able to go on, you know, the, a web browser, search for something and find the answer mm-hmm. rather than having to wait a month to go to a class for a week and then ask the guy when I'm there. There's sure. a certain convenience about electronics, you know, that you can get information more quickly. And the way that the technology is moving, you almost need to get it more quickly. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question about that. Now, Mark, you made a, a very important comment a few minutes ago about when you are taking a, a live course, you've made a commitment and you are, you're there, you've spent the money and you've traveled and do all of that. And when you're doing a course at home, there are any number of distractions or th- reasons why you just don't do it or finish it. And you really have to be motivated for me, uh, one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm intent on becoming absolutely fluent in Spanish within a couple of years. And I'm doing training on in Spanish for two hours every single day. I do an hour in the morning and I do an hour in the evening. And But I've made an absolute commitment to do that. And um, you know, I'm not varying from it because it's something I really, really want to do. Right. Tell people why and you really of, want to do it, though, so they understand. Well, I live in Spain, and I'm, you know, I, I'm now a permanent resident of Spain, and I'm not going to live anywhere else. I'm, you know, I'm here for the rest of my life, however many years that is. And it's important to me when I'm living in a foreign country, and I've lived in four, five foreign countries, including the U.S to be able to communicate in their language rather than expect them to speak mine. You un- you get accepted more, you understand more, and um, you adapt, you're more adaptable when you speak other languages. I mean, I speak German, I speak French, I speak Spanish, I speak Arabic, I speak some Thai. None of them are now fluent. The Arabic is gone, mostly gone, and so is the German because I just don't use them. But I'm still a linguist at heart, and I like to be able to communicate and understand what's being said. So that's why it's important to me. Yep, and if you want to be a good FileMaker programmer, you have to put in the time. I always tell people when they talk to me because they think they can take one class for me, let's say a three-day class or a five-day class, and then pass a certification exam. I'm like, no, 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 no. You have to spend time like Michael's just talking about every single day. So I ask him, how many hours a week can you can you devote to FileMaker if you want to if you want to be the expert at your company and do all these databases that they're talking about? And I ask them what they're going to try to do. And if, if it's a, a contact manager, say, okay, yeah, you can probably do that with a you know a couple hours a week. But if you're going to try to build some type of solution to run the company 
you're going to need a lot of experience and you need to put that time in. You really do. Uh, it's There's no shortcuts. Well, just to put that in perspective, John, I don't think I was any good whatsoever at FileMaker until I'd spent 5,000 hours working with it. And now I calculated the other day that I've spent more than 70,000 hours working with FileMaker. And I'm nowhere near the best in the world. Nowhere near. So it takes an enormous amount of time to become proficient. But then to get to to be an expert is like going from a in golf, going from a double digit handicap to a single digit handicap. That's difficult. But then when you get to a single digit handicap, going to every one hand one point lower is exponentially more difficult. So the, there's no shortage. There's no there's no shortcut to being good at anything. You've got to put the time and devote the time to it. Yeah, I think uh, both Michael and I have talked outside the podcast, and we both agree that sometimes uh, people want to shortcut that process. And I I know it from my videos because. I have usually a long video series that's about 40 or 50 hours long. And it's long, right? It's called The Philosophy of of FileMaker. And it's a long video, but it covers everything you might need to know to produce uh, a valid FileMaker solution from a developer's point of view, not from an amateur's point of view. And one of the things that happens is that people will go ahead and and that's one of the things I always say I've got to work on go ahead. I say it all the time, <laughs> just going back to our previous conversation. So I apologize. It's one of those things I cannot get out of my vocabulary right now, but I'll try not to say it the rest of this podcast. But the whole thing is that people will call me up or email me and say, hey, what's the password to the example file? It, it's got a password now. I don't know what it was. And I said, and I always tell them what it is for your convenience. Here it is. But in chapter six, we covered it about, I said the, pa- I say the password literally more times than I need to, because I know this is going to happen. And people just skip around in the videos or skip parts. I think they know. And, and that's a real a difficult issue. You, there's no shortcut. You can't find the answer you want and then apply it to your solution. You have to have a broad base of knowledge. And that's the thing we want to get across, or one of the things we want to get across in this podcast is that if you want to learn FileMaker, you have to put in the time. You have to have that broad knowledge base in order to really program a FileMaker database successfully. And you've got to and you've got to do it. You've got to physically do it and get it wrong and you know try to do something and Keep working it until it works. You make mistakes. That's how you learn. I mean, all of us have made every single mistake in the book, and but we don't often make the same mistake twice. We learn. We know what doesn't work, and we've discovered that by years and years of of practice and and start striving to be as good as we can possibly be. Yeah, you guys are speaking to commitment. You know, commitment to take a course, commitment to learn a language, commitment. And commitment comes, I think, from goals and passion. And I think the the key ingredient to learning anything like FileMaker is, you know, you you almost have to love it in order to enjoy spending the time with it. And then once you spend the time with it, you'll find that it rewards you uh, on multiple levels. Um, Both intellectually, it rewards you. It could even reward you financially. In most cases, it does if you're a professional developer. 
but it's the commitment, which I think comes from passion. And not every day you're going to feel like programming in FileMaker. Not every day you're going to feel like working on a problem you've been working on for several hours. Um, but I think if you, at the end of the day, you know, when you get giddy that you just programmed a, a giant routine that creates a PDF and combines it on the server and it sends an email out, it's in a long, elaborate script. And, you know, and you look back, you say, wow, that was just so cool doing that. And just look at the results, you know, and, and again, you're a one man audience in this case, but you know, if you can, if you can go to bed that night with a smile on your face, knowing that you did something very cool, you automated something or, and you're going to impact other users. If you feel that giddy feeling, then you're probably going to be a really good FileMaker developer because you love it to, to that point when, when really no one's watching. I think that's the key to, to, to knowing, do I have the commitment for this? Is this something for me? Or is my boss making me do it because they've injected FileMaker on me and now I have to learn all this under duress? So I think those are the distinctions. And I think that's why we've come together here on this podcast after 20, 30 years of doing this. Uh, now we're talking about it for free because we just love it. We just love everything about it and we just can't get enough of it. Yeah, we do. And it is it is passion, Mark. I mean, if you really are passionate about something, as all of us are passionate about Farmaker, we want to push the envelope. We want to break new ground. We want to discover new ways of doing things. We want to be able to do it better than the guy who did it before. All of us want that. And we have this drive and this obsession, if you like, to, to do that. And because of that, we're willing to spend enormous amounts of time honing our craft and trying and failing and learning and doing things. I'm still learning stuff every single week. And I've been doing it for 34 years. You can't say that about many things. I, I think when we look at all the people we've interviewed on this podcast and we ask them almost always, how'd you get into FileMaker? Oh, I saw this thing and I fell in love with it and blah, blah, blah. And that's why these guys are good because they fell in love with it. And you really need that to learn. So it's a key a component. I'm glad you guys brought that up. Let's talk a little bit about the variety of electronic materials out there because we have mostly talked about videos. There's paid for videos. There's YouTube videos, which are free. There are blogs. There are podcasts, of course. There's one right here. You have meetups and screen sharing, downloadable files, which is how I started my career in the public forum or public market, you know, giving people, and it's still there at the databasepros.com. And then you have the forums. There's quite a few forums. There's the FileMaker community, FM forums, and FileMaker today. I think they're calling themselves Claris FileMaker Forum now. What, tell me your guys' thoughts on, on any of these, uh, these different avenues to look. Which ones do you think are the most important beyond the videos? What, what, what do you guys like to do? What do you guys like to learn from? That's a very good question. And um, I don't learn from anything specific. I pick up nuggets and I see a video or somebody makes a comment in a forum that I happen to be watching and I go, that's really interesting. And that starts me thinking and noodling and because it's all about noodling, you know, get an idea. Well, I wonder what if I could do that? That's a really interesting idea. I wonder... And you start to think that way. But 
I think all of them have their place, and there's a place for as much as as the community is willing to put out. The problem is, is it like a tree falling in the forest? Do you hear the sound of the tree falling when there's nobody there? Or one hand clapping? You know, we so much of it is in a vacuum and we just don't know. We hope that we've imparted wisdom and knowledge. But do we ever know for sure? Mark, do you ever feel you know for sure? Uh, it's, it's hard to to know what impact you're making specifically. And number one, people are generally shy when it comes to making comments on a YouTube video or even sending an email to the to the instructor or the author. Um, and I think that some people are afraid to admit that they're not as interested or not as adept, uh, and maybe that's why they tune out. Um, kind of back to what what John was saying. I think your question was kind of twofold, John. And, and maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but the way I interpreted your question was, how do we like to learn as being with the experience level that w- the three of us have? And then how how best would someone else learn if they're starting from scratch, in a sense, and what resources would they go to? Yeah, all those things, sure. Okay. So, well, just for me, I find myself in the FileMaker help files a lot, and I find myself in Data Viewer a lot. Help those files, t- definitely, for sure. But yeah, yep. that's, don't under underestimate those. No, oh, do not underestimate the help files, especially the fine print below. There's a lot of good test questions there. Um, but in, in any case, you know, I want to explore functions, so I want to get familiar with the function. Then I'll play around with it in the data viewer, and then I'll see how it adapts or works with the project that I'm working on. So, so that's where I spend some time. I do occasionally go to YouTube videos and check this and that, um, the community forum and forums. I'd check on that as well. Try to see who solved this problem. A lot of times I'll find myself reading a blog article. Somebody solved a particular issue and you kind of read through that. But you know what? I don't read it word for word. I skim through it, you know, check out the things I need and then interpret it and then bring it back and then experiment and tinker. So perhaps they're doing that with our videos too. You know, they're, they're looking at a portion of the video. It gets them enough idea to say, okay, they can do it. Now let me go try it. And without watching the whole thing as an example. So, you know, um, people at Claris have asked me, Mark, what's the best way for someone to get certified? And I think this kind of harkens back to what you were saying, John, where the expectation is I'll take a course, I'll take three courses even, and I'll be ready to be certified. And uh, I don't think that ever really works out that way, maybe for some, but not for most. Uh, so what I tell them is, you know, you need to get basic training and and I'm not saying this to, to be a brown noser, but we do use the JMO training, John Marks training for employees that are brand new to FileMaker. And occasionally we'll hire people that are brand new to FileMaker and train them up from scratch. So that's the boot camp, we call it. And then we have them watch our own courses in the university for the more advanced stuff or to learn our products or to learn APIs or anything like that. And um, But you know, all of that, they're still not going to be ready for certification nowhere near. Um, because they're just not fluent enough or agile enough. They haven't been in surgery long enough to their hands aren't steady enough to pull off answering a question in the time that you need to answer it before the test timer rings. So for that, it's just brute force experience, you know, writing script after script, working with calculations and relationships. 
But, you know, uh, you know like I said, people at Claris, they, they want people to get certified. It's in their best interest. Uh, it helps promote the platform. It's also a requirement to be a, pl- a partner. You have to be certified to be a partner. So th- they, they ask, how do, we, how do we get somebody? How can we? They don't say it like this. How do we fast track somebody? But how best can we get a candidate to be certified? So I'll tell them, you know, you got to go through the boot camp. You got to have the experience. Yes, take our certification course. That'll help. Um, and then I say, I say the easiest way to get someone certified is to tell them how hard the test is and how much of a commitment it is to be certified and to prep for that. And um, I'm not shy about it. I tell them it's going to take 20 to 40 hours of preparation studying before you sit that exam, even if you have 20 years of experience, because you just have to be aware of what questions are going to come, how fast they're going to come, how difficult they're going to be, and how little time you have. So um, anyway, so that, that that's my whole philosophy on training and the resources we use and what I feel works for me and for others. Yeah, I want to emphasize something Michael said, and then you kind of said the same thing, but in a different way. But Michael said, hey, the way that I learn is by noodling. I call it fiddling, and I talk about it in my videos all the time. It's about making mistakes. It's about trying things out. It's about, I don't know something. Let me Google it and find if there's a blog article or a video that might cover the subject, get me started on it. I mean, you both talked about this stuff. And you know, you can get a good foundation from a video or a book or a class, but then there's going to be things that just aren't answering. You're not going to always have an expert there to help you out. And you got to go in there and fiddle around sometimes. Sometimes you have to figure out yourself. You're like, wow, okay, I did it this way and it worked really good, but I did this way. It was much faster. And the way that all of us learned since we grew up with the industry is that we fiddled around. We played around with FileMaker to learn it. And that's your most critical learning technique is to go out there and just play with FileMaker and you'll learn a lot that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think in actual fact, in truth, John, it's the only way to learn FileMaker and to be good at FileMaker is to just keep doing it and doing it and doing it and making mistakes and figuring out why didn't that work? Oh my gosh. You know, there's a, there's a very interesting thing about success and failure. And this is actually relevant to the conversation. We learn nothing at all from success. We just pat ourselves on the back and we say, oh my God, we're so smart. But when you fail, you go, now what happened there? I wonder why. What did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? Where did it go wrong? So we analyze and when we're developing a solution or trying to solve a problem, we fail and we go back and go, okay, well, that didn't quite work, but what if I just change this? And that's when you're you're digging deep into that, you know, subconscious, superconsciousness, whatever you call it, that your brain is trying to figure out for you where you went wrong and that's how you become good by by failing frequently. Correct. I was going to say you can watch somebody play the piano, and they can teach you every technique from their expert eye. They can play you the most beautiful music, but you're not going to learn a darn thing about the piano until you start playing it. So I think very much like what you guys are saying, the fiddling aspect, the hobbyist. And by the way, that's where the most satisfaction is. 
you know, going into data viewer and being frustrated with trying to get a calculation to evaluate and getting nothing after nothing, after nothing, after nothing. And then finally, you've got the right amount of parentheses in there. We've got the right commas and you've got the parameters specified correctly. Boom. There's my result. Ah, finally, that is rewarding. That's fun. That's where the intellectual stimulus comes from. And that's what you can take to the bank. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. When you get it, when you actually get something to work that you've been struggling with, it's like, yes, yup. Big pat on the back. It, yeah, it's a, it's a milestone. And uh, that's really what it's all about. It's like, it's like in golf. You know, I play golf and I used to be a, a nine handicap player and was very consistent. And then I stopped playing for six years and I'm now playing again. And I'm nowhere near as good as I used to be, but I still hit those shots that I go, wow, oh my God, I still got it. Yeah, it's rewarding. So I think we've covered just about every type of training out there. The in-person, we covered live, which would be developer conferences, users groups, we touched on that, Um, videos, including YouTube and paid for videos, books, magazine, blogs, podcasts, meetup, screen sharing, downloadable files, forums. All this stuff is at your disposal and it's a matter of figuring out which of the different areas is best for you. What we want to do with the rest of the podcast here is go over some of the things that we think make a good class. It might be for an in-person class. It might be for in-person and video It might be for a blog article. We're going to cover some things and talk about these. And the first thing that we have written down here is more for an instructor or for somebody who wants to teach a class. And one of the most difficult things for me was getting a whole room full of students at exactly the same level. I would interview them before they took the class, before they even paid the money and say, hey, you need to brush up on this or, or, or you're too, you, you know too much for this class. No matter how much I did that, I still got in there and there was people who had different learning capacities and they learn differently and you have to get in there in the class and identify those students. And, you know, you've got to give some special attention to other people and, and, and maybe separate. I've even taken the class and, and separated the class and saying, Hey, you guys are going to work on this part of the project and you guys are going to work on this part of the project. Cause they had clearly different skill levels. And I'm curious about uh, you guys in, in this whole concept of, of identifying students It's difficult to do. Uh, what are you guys thoughts? That's extremely difficult to do. It reminds me of a story where I was supposed to teach people Microsoft word on the Mac and there were there was literally one person who could barely maneuver the mouse. This is years ago, back in the '90s. And literally, they had they really were not even skilled at running a computer or operating it. That was an extreme challenge. And uh, I guess the only way I compensated for that was to use in my language to say, "Well, for some of you, you might not be quite up to speed for this, so I'll work with you later." It's thereby making them comfortable while at the same time moving the class forward. You know, it's it was a dance. It was a dance to have to juggle. I, I think you were lucky in that you could self-screen some of these people, but I was not that lucky. It was literally done, you know, people just enrolled in these classes and I got what I got. So I had to deal with whatever it was when, when I showed up. But um, yeah, that was a challenge. And I was so naive back then that I didn't realize that that would have been a challenge. I didn't think about the different levels. But once, it, once I was in the thick of it, it was like, oh boy, this is going to be tough. Well, I remember 
Um, this is going back a long time. In 1977, I was in the army, British Army, and I was state was going to be in Oman for a year, Sultan of Oman. And before I went, I had to attend a three-month intensive Arabic course at the Army Language School. And we got there, and there were 35 people on this class, and two of us, Dave Anley and myself, were just so far learning so much faster than the rest of us that with than the rest of them that within three days they had gotten the other instructor and he worked with just the two of us for the rest of the three months and at the end of it we both left the school speaking very good arabic and the rest of the class not so much so but if they if they had kept us within that rest of that group we would have been demotivated and frustrated and we wouldn't have um, got the knowledge that we had so trying to teach at the level of the highest is impossible you've always got to teach at the level of the almost the lowest denominator and for those who got it the first time it's enormously frustrating very good point so part of yeah, yeah, very good point. And and part of this whole thing that I'm just thinking now about this question is it's about realizing what level you're at. Are you, you know, you don't want to be a beginner at FileMaker and try to design a complete solution to run your entire business. You got to start off with a contact manager or maybe some type of knowledge base that tracks uh, your you know your belongings or something i mean you can't just go from from 0 to 60 you've got to you've got to know your knowledge and some people i think uh, don't analyze that hey maybe i'm not at that knowledge level and i need to start off somewhere else and it really will help you to learn better you know get to where you're at know how much you know and that's hard to know but but to some degree you've got to try to to analyze yourself and see where you're at so you can it, it, you know not just rely on the teacher to be uh, good enough to to realize who's at what level but yourself so you enroll in the right class that's a very difficult um, it's a that sort of evaluation is very difficult to do John because it's you're in somewhat of a vacuum you can get you know, an idea of how good you are by talking to your peers and being able to bring things up that they haven't thought about or understand things, everything that they're talking about. So, but even, even that is very judgmental. Uh, I don't know whether judgment was the right word, but you're making an assessment and it isn't easy. The only thing that I know is that the moment you think you're really good at something is when you find you're not really good at something. You've got to always believe that you're not anywhere near as good as you could be and strive to be better. I think that's where we get some of our business, and I'm sure you guys do too. We'll, we'll have customers that have a FileMaker system and that sometimes the owner or some key individuals will be programming in it, and they know enough to get started and they can do the basics, but then it's time they get over their head and they want to take things to the next level. They'll hire a company like a, a firm like ours or you guys. I mean, you guys have told me many times that people will hire you. They know something, but they don't know it all and they get stuck. So um, finding that partner, that developer person that can help when things get difficult can be essential. And then it also helps them learn because then they can look over the shoulder and say, ah, so that's how you solve it. Okay, well, now I've learned that. And it becomes a journey for them. 
And uh, so I, I agree with that. Let's move on to another uh, training concept I like to call the analogy. And a good analogy can help simplify a concept or bring it home to somebody. And I use one, I use a lot of analogies. I got one called the tool belt where, you know, you've got different tools on your belt. But the one I wanted to talk about here was my marbles analogy. And a lot of people try to, and, and this especially I use it most uh, a lot with training, but also with clients that are trying to understand what's going on. And, and they're trying to understand what records are and how they can go into a report and why Excel is not a database and, and FileMaker is. And, and, and so I say, what if you have a bag of marbles and you want to take them out and separate them by size, small, medium, large, maybe by color, maybe by cost. These are all attributes of these marbles, maybe by manufacturer. Any of these attributes, you can say, isolate these records or these marbles by putting them into a pile or in FileMaker by doing a find. And this is exactly how a report works or how any kind of find does and what makes a database truly powerful. There's a lot of things, but I think there's one thing that really does it, which is the find, the search, the query. And when I try to tell them that you want to make sure that when you're trying to create a record, you know, how, what should be on a record? You know, how should you construct a record? How do I know what makes up a record? Well, think about how you want to use it later. How do you want to divide things, things up? If you're putting two names on one record, two people, you're not going to get them in two different parts of the report very easily. But if they're on two separate records, then you can. And so hopefully these analogies help students learn. And I think it's a good part of a class. And I think, uh, Mark, you have an analogy that you use quite a bit. I use an analogy when it comes to certification preparation training versus traditional FileMaker training. So in traditional FileMaker training, I think that the instructor is trying to train you how to be a pilot. You have to know enough about the plane to operate it. You have to be able to take off, fly safely, and land safely. Uh, that could be akin to, okay, I want to build an invoice system. How do I do that? So in a sense, by the end of that course, they will have learned how to build an invoice system. And they'll be, you know, they'll learn FileMaker. They'll learn how to program something. With certification training, we're not teaching them how to be pilots. We're teaching them about the plane parts, all the different parts, every part at nauseum in detail. How does this wheel work? How does this wheel fit into the other wheel? How does it connect to the fuselage? How does the fuselage connect to the wing? What is the wing? What's it made of? How does the wing work? But at the end of the day, they still won't be able to fly the plane, but they'll know all the different parts. So I think that's the difference between training someone for certification preparation and actually training them how to operate and run and build a system. So I use that planes versus um, pilots analogy a lot for that. It comes back to, I'm going to, I'm going to have to jump in there. I couldn't care less how the plane works. I couldn't care less how the, how a car runs. I just want to turn the ignition and drive or fly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, certification is about the people who make the cars, uh, you know, who build the, the, the machinery and all the parts and things. And the race car driver is the actual developer, you know? Someone just wants to get in, turn it on, and start running around and building something amazing. So anyway, that's one way of doing it. 
Uh, I can't give you an, an example of an analogy that I would use, um, John. I try and use humor wherever possible because I've found that if you can make a point with humor, it's more likely to sink in. And, and sometimes you poke fun at sacred cows and sometimes you poke fun at yourselves and all of that. But humor for me has always been the way I've tried to communicate both in Farmaker and in, um, in, in, you know, and when I'm speaking, you know, I'm a humorous speaker. I'm, I write humor. I try and be as funny as I can possibly be, but that's my particular style. Yeah. I think anybody would agree that, that, uh, injecting a humor into, into training always helps. It kind of relieves the tension of, of this intense technical conversation and you get a little laugh will help you to open up your, your, your learning there. So I, yeah, definitely um, a great technique and something you want to look at when you're looking for somebody to kind of follow and mentor you, even if they're mentoring you from an electronic point of view and they don't really know who you are, you're still going to find somebody who teaches the way that you like to learn and somebody can explain concepts well, and whether that's with an analogy or with humor, they all help out. For sure. You know, and the other point about humor is that sometimes we have to tell people things that are unpalatable to them because they've got their certain prejudices. And, you know, all of us will agree that spreadsheets are horrible and nowhere near as good as FileMaker, and, and we hate them. I'm pretty sure you, Mark, does as well. But if you'd say to somebody, okay, spreadsheets are a pile of crap, they're going to go, yeah, yeah, that's your opinion. But if you make that point in a humorous way, as I did in, in one of the animated films, people will go, yeah, that's funny. Uh, yeah, I kind of recognize that scenario. That might actually be true. So it's more palatable to make those difficult points as well. And I think that's one of the reasons I like it. I've got a healthy respect for spreadsheets and what they do. I'm sure they serve businesses all over the world on a daily basis for essential for essential things. Um, but no, are they as powerful as a database in the true sense? No, but they're not a database in the true sense. I mean, I guess loosely you could say they're a form of database because they store and collect records, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, uh, it's funny because I think someone had uh, emailed me separate and said, you know, I love I love the podcast you guys are doing, but why do you guys hate spreadsheets so much? <laughs> they actually made a comment about that. So anyway, it was funny. Well, it's here's a funny story: is every time I do a video or make some comment about how awful spreadsheets are, I get hate email from somebody who says you don't know what you're talking about, and spreadsheets are great. And I always write back and I said, well, thanks, thanks very much for writing. If you'd like to give me an example of where a database, a spreadsheet is better than a database, please do so, and I'll be happy to talk about that. And to date, I've had no replies to any of those emails I've sent back. Yeah, I think the problem with spreadsheets is that they're so often misused. They go beyond what they're really meant to do, and there's spreadsheets are very limited in what they can do and what they're good at. And I think just people making a spreadsheet that's wider than their screen 
you know there's a problem at that point and you need a database. You know, there shouldn't be anything. It's about just having some numbers there and, and making sense of them and adding them up. And it, they, they're a very, very, very basic database. They don't go anywhere close to doing what a real database can do. And, you know, people constantly misuse them. That's really what it comes down to, I think. Water will find a way. People will do what they know how to do with the tools at their fingertips. So, yeah, I remember, um, you know, here's an example. I was working at uh, a county organization uh, years back. I won't mention who it is. And they would get this information from their mainframes and spend two or three days in Excel taking the down, you know, the download they got from the mainframe and putting it into a spreadsheet to have it make sense and to summarize. And there would often be mistakes and things like that. And I came in and used a little ODBC, connected up to the mainframe, pulled the data in, and all they had to do was hit a button. Um, and it was never incorrect unless there was incorrectly entered on the mainframe. So people use spreadsheets because they feel like they can do something in it real quickly. They're familiar with it, but they just misuse it. And that's that's the whole issue, I think. But I also think we need to move on here too. So. <laughs> But I think it's more than that, John. I think it's that people don't understand that there is there are better options out there. They've been conditioned to believe that this is what you need to run a business because that's what the business schools teach and they should be ashamed right. of themselves. <laughs> but they really should because it isn't a, a good solution for running a business. It's great, as Mark says, for limited things, but not for running a business. So uh, now that you guys know but, how we feel about Excel... Uh, let's talk <laughs> and it's rightly so i mean you know people we need to get them to stop using spreadsheets as much as they do but uh i don't think it's going to you know ever end soon but let's talk about another concept uh in one of the things that's one of my pet peeves uh, going to a, a conference or watching a video where the text is so small that i can't read it and I don't know about Windows, but I'm pretty sure there's accessibility features where you can zoom in on Windows also, or at least buy a, a software to do it. But on the Macintosh, which I'm most familiar with, you just go into the system preferences, accessibility, and then you can see all the zoom features there that allow you to zoom in real quickly and zoom out. It's an easy keyboard command and can really change your video or your training class, live training class. Uh, by allowing people to see it because people have visual issues and, and, and you're looking at your screen, you're not thinking about what they're, you got to get yourself in the, in the shoes of whoever's taking the class. And if they can read what you're doing more easily, then they're going to learn more. And I, I can't, I can't uh, you know, say enough about Zoom. It's one of my most uh, treasured ways to teach a concept, honestly. And another important element of this is more and more people are consuming video content on a mobile device, which inherently has a smaller screen. Yeah, you can't if realistically, you know, the the Richard, the Attenborough series videos, Mark, which is really a, a blog post with somebody reading it. Um, I mean, I've got all the text on the on the screens for somebody if they really want to read along with what the narrator is is saying. But often it's too small and your mind is drifting away and you're not necessarily looking at the screen. So 
it's like PowerPoint presentations. You've got to have a, a PowerPoint presentation or a keynote with just a couple of words on it. Big, big, big. And that's a, it's a bullet point, effectively. And that's all that the user should see. And the rest of it should be explained. Because the moment you rely on people reading stuff that's small text or going too fast, and you've lost the audience. Right. Right. You've got to be prepared with your with your equipment and your in your technique. And I got to honestly say one thing, though, if you lost that accent, you wouldn't have to worry about the tiny little words. Uh, as I said, John, I don't have the accent you do. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, let's talk about the next thing, uh, which if I go and I haven't taught classes uh, live in, in several years, but whenever I went into a, a class, whether it was for uh, uh, for a client where I was doing private training or I was doing it in a public manner, I had to have at least one whiteboard pot. If I could two, that would be great. And I can't tell you how important having something separate from your screen is because you can write down the concepts there here. We're going to talk about this. Okay. Go over to the screen. Let's do it. Okay. Number two, put the bullet point on the whiteboard, you know, simple stuff like that can help tremendously so that people understand where you're at, what's going on, have something for them to look at, you know. And so for me, a whiteboard is, is tremendous. It's very visual, and people like to watch people draw, as strange as that sounds. It's kind of a human trait that, you know, whether we watch somebody drawing something because we're learning how to draw something. But even watching someone paint something on a whiteboard a few things happening. Number one, you're explaining one concept at a time because you're starting with circles, let's say squares, then you put a little text and and they see the evolve, the evolution of the idea. Rather than looking at the entire whiteboard at once, you're drawing it from scratch. So that's point number one. There's an evolution. Point number two, it's interesting when the instructor actually has to erase something because then, and John, you've told me this many times in other conversations we've had about training where making a mistake in front of the student is kind of a good thing because in a way it's like, oh yeah, I, I remember they made that mistake and I won't, won't want to repeat that myself. It's an emotional trigger. So by erasing part of that whiteboard, redrawing it, it's like, oh, okay, I can see the thought process here and the fact that they, it's okay to backstep and, and to get to the end result. So I, I think a whiteboard is more than just a tool for convenience. I think it's an actual interesting way to train somebody. That's it's a very good, um, very good explanation, and something that I hadn't actually thought of until you said it. And yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent agree with you. Um, I just wanted to go back because I forgot to say this, John, when you were talking about your marbles and an analogy. Um, we my marbles. marbles analogy. We all know you've oh, lost. Oh, that we one, all okay. know you've lost your marbles. Oh, you're changing the subject. Well, I am, but we're just. Going back to, we've always wondered if you'd actually lost your marbles, but uh. yeah, well, I was talking about a different set of marbles, <laughs> but anyhow. Sorry, go ahead and make your point. Uh, I apologize. Right. That's okay. <laughs> we we like to have a little bit of fun. What's what's wrong with that? And and uh, Michael and I like to to beat each other up a little bit. Ah, that's not true at all, John. I love it. You don't like to beat <laughs> you? They okay, right? Sorry. <laughs> I was like, wow, I thought I knew you. <laughs> um, so the next thing I'd like to talk about and have you guys' uh, point of view on uh, is the example file. And I'm going to mention a couple of things here, but I, I, I think example files are great. Um, 
I prefer to do them from scratch. So when the student sees it, they know every nut and bolt. And, and this comes from experience with the FileMaker training series, the FTS, which is a great material. I, I looked at it all the time. But from a from a, a beginner or intermediate point of view, there were some failings in there that I had some difficulties with. And one was they gave you a CD with it, right? And on that CD, there was these completed files. They had had the relational structure, some scripts, some interface, some buttons. And they said, add this to it. Well, I don't even know what this other stuff is. What are you talking? And for me, that was a big problem with the FTS training, which is, is not around anymore. But, you know... I like to do things from scratch and, and I think that's key so that you can really see everything that's going on. I think there's a point at which you get beyond that and you're, you're an expert and, and you want to learn, you want to have the shortcut to it because you know all that other stuff and you can look at a database and go, Oh, I get it right away. You go, Oh, you're using a join table and there's a script. It's, you know, it's very easy for you to see all that stuff, but for people who are just starting out, you can't just throw out a, a, a complex file and ask them to add something onto it and expect them to learn as best as they can. No, I agree with you. Yeah. I'll say a few words on that. Uh, I kind of like, back to your analogy of cooking, you ever watch a cooking show where they show you the ingredients, they put the ingredients, they start mixing it, they talk and talk and talk, and then they put it in the oven, then they fast forward to the final product. So to use your analogy, yeah, I might start them from scratch with a file, get them oriented. Here's, here's the table occurrences. Here's the relationships. Here's the value list and the things that we're creating to make this. Here's the thought behind it and here's how it's constructed. But I can't show you everything because it's going to take hours and hours to make the other three, four tables, the half a dozen table occurrences. So I'll show you the completed thing. And basically all, it's the best of both worlds. You have this, the starting concept and then the completed product when it comes out of the oven. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a cook, uh, and I cook all the time and I love it. And that's why I use that analogy. But I, I, and I end up watching a lot of cooking shows and I really don't like the ones where they say, Hey, we've done this ahead of time. I, I can't stand that. It's mm -hmm, like, right. it, it's like, I want to know what you did ahead of time. I really do. That's the important part. Yeah, yeah it, it, precisely. And I was going to say something else about the, uh, the process of demo files the one danger in demo files, and I think you alluded to it a little bit, is if you hand somebody a completed demo file, they're interested, they open it up, they click the button, they see the end result. But they really haven't learned anything. Uh, I think that if you can have them build their own demo file from scratch, and that's another reason why I like your videos, John, is because you'll start with a blinking cursor. And at the end of the, the thing, you'll have a completed invoice ready to go. You keep adding on it and adding on it. But you kind of make them do it with you. You don't just hand them the end of the, the file and say, oh, follow along best you can. No, 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 no. You're going to build this thing with me. And you're going to have the same results in your own way. So I'm a big fan of building your own demo files. Fine, give them a demo file as a reference point, but don't use it as a crutch. Yeah, I have never done any video or any class that I except for FTS, where I didn't start from scratch. Literally, like you said, cursor blinking, type in the name, save it, and say, here's what you get. That's that's how I do all my classes. And I think there's really, for me, it's the only way to teach a class and for you to really learn FileMaker. If you just want to learn kind of a few little things about it, 
great. You know, the getting a completed demo file and adding on to it's fine. But for me, uh, even if I repeat some stuff that, you know, you still know what's going on. You know, every little detail about that file once you've gotten through the class and you can refer back to it and understand it and not go, Hey, what are they doing over here? I don't quite understand it. You're still having to teach yourself at that point. So what's the, what's the idea of having all this stuff in it already? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And people have told us that, you know, when we watch training, we're learning more than just the concept you're trying to explain. We're learning how you program and we're learning all these little tricks that we didn't know about. You don't even mention the tricks, but you're using them and all of a sudden, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Like hitting the escape key to select the record count in the in the box up at the top, you know, for the little things like that, that you do, that we do just because we either know the shortcuts or something. It's like, wow, I learned so many other little ancillary things when I watch you build it from scratch versus just here's the demo file and, you know, reverse engineer it on your own. And, you, and some people like to do that. I mean, I've had downloadable files off the databasepros.com and essentially it's, it's a short description and, and some notes in there, but you have to mostly reverse engineer it. And there's a time and place for that. Don't get me wrong. Oh, sure. I just think when you're starting out, it's not a good place to be. Yeah. Yeah. If you're an intermediate developer and you just, you don't need to learn how to, you already know how to create fields and relationships. You just want the file that does the advanced trick. Uh, sure. Then you absolutely do want a demo file that you don't have to build from scratch. You want just the opposite. So, yeah. So the next thing uh, that makes a good class is the handout. And that can be in an in-person class or even in video training. Yes, there are handouts in video training. You can give them a downloadable file. Um, that they can download from that video series. And, and it could be who knows what. I mean, anything that you want to help to uh, improve that. Like, for instance, in one of my video training classes, I have a requirements document example. So I talk about a requirements document, but seeing one uh, and having one to play around with or even basing your requirements documents going forward off of what I've given you can help out. So during my scripting class, what I used to do is pass out a list of all of the script steps that were there. And I go through and I do the good, the bad, and the ugly. And in fact, I wrote a, a blog article on it since I don't really teach that class very much. But I would go through and say, look at these hundreds of script steps. I think there's like 130 or 40 of them at this point, maybe more. And I would say, look, you don't, there's nothing to learn on this one. Oh, this one's, you know, this one you, you only use on, you know, iOS and, and this one, oh man, this is bad. Don't use cut, copy or paste. And, you know, that would be the, the bad. And, and then I would say, Hey, there's set field, learn this one a lot. And we go through it that way. And that little handout they could take, I'd you know, have them, I'd say, put stars next to the ones really want you to learn and those, that takeaway really helped them out rather than having to go, Hey, what was that? The script steps he said I should learn, you know, trying to find the page. No, he's got this little handout. And I thought that was always nice to have things like that in a class. I think it's good like that for video training too, because videos are hard to scrub through necessarily. If you've got a 10 minute video, it's hard to find, you know, if, if there were five points in that video, wouldn't it be nice to have all five points in a list that I could use, either see it below the video in the transcript or have it as a PDF document or a link to something else. So uh, yeah, that's the one situation about videos that's a little tricky where books have a distinct advantage. You know, you can go to page 23 and carve out that information and see it in a heartbeat. Um, but it's hard to find 
in a video, it's hard to scrub through a video unless you have a, an accompanying transcript. Then it actually is it is pretty easy. I think Udemy has all their transcripts built in like that. And I think LinkedIn Learning does too. Yeah, they do that. They'll announce that they've transcribed it. And I'm like, okay, good. Thank you. Yeah, that, I think that helps a student so they can scrub through and find keywords. But um, yeah, I, I'm not one to do many PDFs or associated handouts personally, but um, I can definitely appreciate th- what they do. And I do have people asking for that every now and then. Hey, do you have a, a PDF for this so I can quote unquote print it? And some people like the tactile feel. They want to feel it. They want to read it independent of the video. Sometimes they just want to read it in silence and they don't want to have a video playing. So um, again, advantages of books, eBooks and things like that is you don't have audio issues. So yeah, one, uh, one time, a long time ago when, when, uh, when you know, this is 20 or 30 years ago, somebody said, you know, I don't want an electronic book. I want to sit down in the bathroom and read my book. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> they want to sit on the throne and then, right. and there's something that that's good about that. But now we guys, I guess we have iPads and, and tablets that we can take in there and basically sure. get the same situation going. But I always thought sure. that was a funny thing that, so I forget who told me that. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people will uh, be consuming content in the room with other loved ones. And unless you want to wear headphones, which a lot of us don't want to wear headphones. A lot of times I'm wearing headphones all day for one reason or another, and I don't want to wear headphones at night right before bed when I'm reading something. So to be able to read something and learn something is an advantage over having a video where you have to listen to something to learn something, uh, listen and watch. So you know, we didn't talk about it earlier, but I think that is a, an interesting concept of can I consume and learn something without having to hear it? That's a, an advantage in certain situations. And some people learn better that way too. So That's true. Some people do. And some people learn better by watching videos. So it's That's also true. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see if I can come up with a third one. <laughs> right. <laughs> some people like listening to podcasts. Right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think the whole thing behind podcasts and, and is that you can do it while you're driving or where you're jogging or while you're cooking. Yeah. You don't have to look at something. You can just yeah. listen. And I, and I do this. Uh, I watch a lot of YouTube stuff. And sometimes I, the YouTube stuff doesn't require me to see what's on the screen or maybe every once in a while. And I'll just sit it and play it in the background and listen to what they're saying and, and get my information that way. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a 100% immersive experience when you're having a podcast or a YouTube playing in the background, just hearing the audio. Uh, whereas other, the other types of learning, whether it be visual or reading a book, it's a full, fully engaged thing. Eyes are on the content. Um, so you, it's hard to be, um, multitasking when you're reading or watching a video, but very easy to be multitasking when you're listening. So let me ask you guys how you feel about the in-class exercise, you know, giving, you know, not you up there talking, but you say, Hey, this is what we're going to do. Everybody go try to do it. And then you walk around the room and, and try to help people. That's the quickest way to determine the level of your students is by having them do it on their own. That's where your eyes become, oh, okay, so this person is struggling. This person's already done it. And so I think if you're looking, if you if you do an exercise early in a live presentation, you're going to learn a lot about that class right from the get-go. And it also is a great icebreaker because 
Now they're actually having to do something. They start asking questions. They start talking to each other. How did you do that? Let me see what you did over there. How did you, you know? So it is a great icebreaker too, to have an in-person exercise early on if you can. Uh, I think it's huge. It also gives you kind of a break from the monotony of hearing your own voice and them hearing your own voice. So all of those things I think about. I mean, some classes are literally all in-class exercises. I mean, I was told to teach when I was in college. I don't know how I got this gig, but somehow I got this gig teaching, uh, uh, I think it was basic or Pascal or forget it's so long ago and everything was an ink. I just literally said a few things at the beginning and then walked around and helped people. That was it. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I'm not sure that I want to, I would want to go that route. Um, sometimes you need to hear the teacher speak, but sometimes you don't want to hear him speak. Right. Yeah. It, it breaks the, it breaks the momentum, monotony, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. Changes things up. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I think uh, uh, we talked about this outside of this podcast, but is after class stuff. When I used to teach in class, per, in class, you know, uh, in person classes, I would have before and after. Before class, I'd let people come in. It was usually a five day class. They could come in once. You know, not everybody signed up, but they could come in and they could discuss their problem with me before we got there. And I'd sit down and talk with them. That one-on-one was great. And then usually afterwards, people ask me questions, but then we'd go out and I think this is what you said, we, we'd break bread. We'd talk with each other. And, you know, when you're teaching a class like that and people have come from all over the United States and sometimes they came from other countries, you know, sitting down with them and eating and giving them a little extra than what you promised them, uh, I think really goes a long way. No, uh- I think it's a I think it's a valid point, but I, I think if you're and obviously the in class um, in classes currently aren't happening and they won't happen for a, a very long time, if ever. And but if you're teaching a class, um, it's your responsibility to go beyond the class hours. It has to be that you are making yourself available and whether that's at the end of the class, you all go for dinner and you have a drink and you sit around and you talk and you just chat. But you can't, as an instructor, you can't, I don't think, you can just expect to do the class and go home and leave your students to fend for themselves. I think that's rude to them and, and I think it's not making a commitment if they're willing to make the commitment to turn up for your class, you owe it to them to give them every moment of your of your possible time that you can without driving yourself into an exhaustion state. But there's teaching and there's socializing and um, getting to know people. And I think that's as important as the class itself, because that's when ideas really start flowing. I think it's even the same thing with the video train. You know, people, there's always a place for people to ask questions. It may not be the same level of, of interaction, but you owe it to them to answer those questions, uh, you know, uh, to the best of your ability. You know, there's a certain point which you have to cut it off. Like you said, you can't go into exhaustion, but you should try to, you know, have some type of outside the class or outside the video time to spend with your students. Absolutely. 
And I never get an email from anybody asking a, a farming a question that I don't answer immediately. And even if I'm really busy, I'll take five minutes to, you know, to, to respond to an email because I just feel that if somebody's taken the time to write to me, I have the, owe them the courtesy of a reply. A and if you don't reply. know the answer, it's too hard to explain. At least send them in the right direction, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've called people and said, look, this is a really interesting question and I can't really give you a definitive answer, but here's some some ideas and some suggestions that you can consider. And uh, so calling people and responding to them, I think, is very important. And one of the things that I've always done is if somebody comes into my mind that I haven't talked to for a long time and I don't just think, oh, I must give them a call. I pick up the phone and call them there and then because they've come into my mind at that point for a reason and I'm going to deal with it then and call them and see if they're there and start to say hello and and then I haven't got to worry about not remembering to do it later. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the keys to success because I do the same thing. Um, if somebody asks you a question, you may not be available that day, but if you are, and there's no, why not just take care of of what it is right now at that moment? I, I'm a firm believer in in you know getting on top of things and not procrastinating about that stuff. Yeah, so I for couldn't, sure. Couldn't agree with you more. I think there's an element to being a teacher or a trainer. Um, there's a certain element of mentorship that in a sense we're responsible for and guidance and a source of inspiration for the student. Yes, you want to teach them what they came there to learn, but I think it is our job in many ways to guide them and to inspire them and to mentor them on their journey uh, in the same way that we were with the people that helped us along the way. So I, I think there are instructors that do both, some that do and some that don't do that. Those that don't are probably forgotten after the course is done and it's, it's, it's not an impact. I think those that stay in touch, I mean, think about the teachers in your school that you grew up with who inspired you to change your life because of what you learned from them or something that they said or did changed you. And you never forget that instructor and the impact it had. All right. Absolutely, Mark. I was just, as you said that, I was just thinking of my English teacher. And he was just this amazing character, and he encouraged everybody to read, and he loved the fact that I was a voracious reader, and we would sit after class and talk about books, because I used to read a lot. And he would sit with me and, and talk to me about books, and I've never forgotten him, and I haven't been in school in 50 odd years so it's a long time for for me it was miss Schilling in fourth grade i've never forget her name i don't remember any of my other well i do remember one other teach teacher which was mrs nodding who was in high school and i remember them because they impacted me and they did things above and beyond what was asked of them you know, like Mrs. Schilling noticed that I was new because I had just moved back to California from Georgia. I was new. So she said, hey, who wants to be John's friend? And I got a friend that I, I never forgot. I mean, I've never, you know, I've always been friends with them my entire life. And, you know, she didn't have to do that. 
And I, I, I'm not sure why I remember Miss Nani. I think she was just so good. She was a math teacher and she was just so good at what she did. She eventually left public schools and went to a private institution, but which was kind of sad, but she was, she was awesome. And, and those teachers make a great impact. So you got to think about how am I going to impact my students? You know, you've got to, you've got to go above and beyond and do something extra special. I think uh, beyond just doing the duty of teaching them the class. Yeah. You've got to, you've re- if you're going to, be a teacher of any kind whether it's unofficial and you know just like i do is just sharing knowledge and sharing ideas as we all do but you are making a commitment to be there to not only share those ideas but if somebody takes the time to communicate to reach out to you you return the favor and you re- you know reach back and being a mentor, having people, you know, being willing to help people is enormously satisfying because we've all needed help in the past. And there are there are still times we need help. I mean, there are times when I run into a, a problem I can't solve and I call one of you two guys or I call another friend who is particularly expert in that field. And so none of us are above asking for help or giving it. Sure. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. Same here. I think, you know, it's student reaches out. You feel. We just want to thank everybody who's listening to the Fireside FileMaker podcast today and and training. And hopefully you learn some stuff. It's a little bit different than what we've done in the past, but we really like some of the conversations that uh, occurred here. And hopefully they can help you out in the future. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Uh, Whether you are a person who loves to train people or whether you are a person who needs to be trained, uh, or you're both, I think that we covered a lot of the stuff here talking about that. Um, The three of us, I can speak for me specifically, but I can also speak for the other two. We just love training, helping, and immersing ourselves in the act of the journey of FileMaker. Yeah, it's an enormously satisfying thing for all of us. And we... Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I'm Michael Rashad. I'm signing off. We'll see you next time and bye-bye for now. Before we finish this podcast, I am going to share with you, with the permission of John and Mark, a audio track that I wrote recently about nightmares. And this follows on from the discussion we were having about spreadsheets. It's only about two minutes long. We hope you'll listen to it and I think you'll enjoy it. So thanks for taking the time to be here. Bye-bye. So, what seems to be the problem? I'm having these terrible nightmares all the time. And to be honest, I think they're driving me insane. That sounds terrible. What can you tell me about them? Well, I'm staring at this huge monitor with thousands of rows and columns of numbers, and I'm trying to find something. But I don't know what I'm looking for, and I keep scrolling up and down and left and right, and I can never find it. But sometimes I do, and then I can't find my way back no matter how hard I try. It certainly sounds like a nightmare. What else happens? Well, I keep typing the same thing over and over and over again, and I want to stop, but I can't. My hands won't respond. They just keep typing until my fingers start disappearing, and then I wake up, screaming. 
Is that it? No. Sometimes I find myself clicking into one of these numbers, and I've got such a sense of dread that I'm about to do something that there's no way back from, like my first marriage. And the last. The most horrible thing is that as soon as I try to close one window, a hundred more open up. I see, but I think I know what's causing this. Let me take a wild guess. You work on spreadsheets, don't you? Yes, but how did you know? I don't think these are nightmares. Ugh, Doc, I hope you're right. But if they're not nightmares, what are they? They're what you do all day and every day. You're stuck in a perpetual loop, kind of like that movie Groundhog Day, only this one is called Excel Day. That's it. You're absolutely right. Is there anything that I can do? Absolutely. I prescribe a bottle of whiskey, maybe two, and FileMaker. You'll be able to find anything you want instantly without scrolling and never have to worry about finding your way back. You'll only have to type things once, and you won't be able to make the mistakes that you're so afraid of. The whiskey will do that. No, no. That's what FileMaker will do. The whiskey will just make you feel better. Ah, oh, thank you, Doctor. I think you've saved my life. And your eyesight, of course. Will you be paying cash? Ah, oh, no. Just send the invoice to Microsoft. Bill, Bill. You've been listening to Fireside FileMaker, a podcast with John Mark Osborne and Michael Richard. We'd love to hear what you think, so please email us at info at firesidefilemaker.com. That's info at firesidefilemaker.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.